The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. <laughs> We're putting you through right away. Hold on, please. Right. Well, thank you very much. I'm Carol Hemingway, my guest, Joe Devlin. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hello, may I speak to Joe Devlin? Hello. That sounds like a very familiar voice. Uh, yes, sir. It's me again, sir. Ah, we have a friend on the line, Carol, Lieutenant Colombo. Right. Uh, I was listening to the program, sir, and I was wondering, it's just a trivial question, sir, but it suddenly hit me. I was wondering about that little poem about justice for the many. Was that written by the same guy that wrote about angels' wings and the unstained pastures of peace? No, indeed, Lieutenant. I discovered that bit of doggerel on the subject of justice scratched on the wall of a prison cell. For all I know, it may still be there, although I haven't checked lately. I thought, sir, that the writer might have been you. I'm sorry, Lieutenant. The author of that scrap of folk wisdom appended his name. Michael Dolan. Later hanged. In any case, Mr. Dolan's passion for justice became my inspiration to escape. And to this day, I revere his memory as a, an original, if untutored, philosopher on the roots of freedom for all men. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June the 9th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. There are a lot of original untutored philosophers out there on the roots of freedom for all men and their philosophies usually leave a lot to desire don't you think Robert they all talk about freedom and none of them seem to understand what the word even means that's true you know I was thinking about that just the other day when you're listening to some of the conservative talk shows down in the states on Sirius XM mm -hmm. and I'm going they just don't have the right fundamentals to explain right. it properly even Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party but uh, you know in the end philosophy is a search for truth the valid philosophy will be the one that reveals that truth and explains things as they are so that they'll make sense in a way that they can actually be understood and relied on. So the question becomes, how do we know the truth when we see it? Although it's a question we've posed many times on the show before, it's always one worth revisiting, especially given the desperate need out there to answer that question. But before we begin, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ at 5130 kilohertz and on channel 292 at 6070 kilohertz. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Yes, Robert, the need for some fundamental truths in our public discussions is unquestionable. The problem is most people assume all politicians lie, or most of them do, while academic professors of philosophy in our universities and colleges are regarded as being completely cut off from the very reality and truths they're supposed to be discovering, <laughs> and that's been my sense for, for a lot of them. Even most educated people do not know 
what philosophy is anymore. And so instead they use their education in their particular field, be it business, be it science, be it economics, be it home, home economics, to draw philosophical and political conclusions as to how governments should address issues. And that's where a lot of trouble starts. Philosophy, like it or not, and believe it or not, is the supreme discipline that rules all of the sciences, the arts, the study of logic, mathematics, etc., you name it. Philosophy is the king of the jungle in the struggle for knowledge. Philosophy is about ideas, and about the idea that ideas matter. We are truly living in a time of irrationality, and an environment wherein people do not believe that ideas matter. It's basically a philosophical, moral, moral meltdown, really, and a philosophical meltdown. Ideas don't matter, but black lives matter. Aboriginal lives matter. But ideas never matter. Unless you consider things like fighting climate change, gender equality, carbon taxes, cartels, and monopolies as ideas, which apparently a lot of our contemporary philosophers and pundits actually do. But I'm here to state out and out that these are not ideas. They are negations of ideas. The flight from reality and from truth and from principles takes many forms and is hidden in many arguments that attempt to disguise self-interest as the public interest, or vice versa. Case in point, and this, this came out of the London Free Press um, editorial by Peter Epp, uh, I think he's originally from the National Post, who, whose headline read, uh, Bernier's uh, Milk Stance well worth crying over, point of view. And this was written on uh, June 2nd of this, this year. And, and I just want to read this for you, and then I'll come back and tell you why I think this is so, so wrong. And he writes, this is again Peter Epp, quote, Maxime Bernier is sticking with his principles, even if those principles would require dismantling an agricultural system that has mostly served Canadian producers and their consumers well. Bernier is federal conservative leadership candidate who does not agree with his party's support for Canada's supply-managed agriculture sector. He says he cannot reconcile his free market principles with supply management. He says the marketing board system for dairy, poultry, and egg producers is inefficient and fundamentally unfair. He further calls it a government cartel, end quote. This is still Peter Epper speaking. Bernier is correct about supply management being unfair if he believes that, in contrast, the free market is always fair. He's also correct that supply management operates as a cartel, a deal that seeks to control prices and exclude competition. But supply management can hardly be described as inefficient. Can you believe this? <laughs> Actually, I do. Yeah. I, I believe what Peter Epp is saying, that he thinks like a conservative. It's unfair. He recognizes it as unfair. He recognizes it as a, as a, as a cartel, but it's efficient. Right. That's right. conservatism right there. There you go. And he, and he writes, the system, ma the system matches supply with demand while giving Canadian dairy farmers the ability to earn an adequate income. It's fine to have principles, but Bernier leaves no room for exceptions, and our supply management system is exceptional. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, brother. Some countries have dismantled their protected milk industry only to see supply overwhelmed with imports and domestic dairy destroyed or subsidized by government to stay afloat. In Canada, dairy production is supported entirely by consumers. Principles are fine, but economic ideas that work are better. <laughs> Peter Epp, 
<laughs> now there is a philosophical and moral meltdown on a grand scale. It's obscene. It's, it's, it's the hatred of the good for being the good, literally. It is conservative pragmatism in practice. Mm-hmm. It's cart, you know, cartel monopoly that's unfair, sets, col- sets, uh, you know, sets and colludes to control prices and excludes the competition at the point of a gun, the gun of government. This is what he's supporting. So let's take a look at Epps' rationalizations for what they are. He criticizes Bernier for, quote, sticking with his principles, even if they require dismantling a system that has served producers and their consumers well, end quote. Well, let's be clear here. The system Epps supports is one that he himself admits, right in his essay, is both unfair and is a cartel. I don't know how you can say those two words and say, yeah, I'm for that. Yes. It's like, like I'm, I'm for child abuse, I'm for this, but because it's, it's efficient, I, I don't get it. Those two things by themselves should have earned his moral condemnation, not his support. His argument is that of, is that of the thief and murderer. It was the same argument made almost verbatim by Al Capone in the audio bite we played a couple of weeks ago on the show. Just change the word milk to alcohol. <laughs> right. You said it, Bob. He does not know the moral argument against the uh, supply management. Right. Totally. It's a complete vacuum. Of course using a gun is an efficient way to get something. Come on. <laughs> but to argue that both producers and consumers benefit from this system is not true. Is it a lie? I would call it a lie. Clearly, without the cartel, the consumers would greatly benefit. When by Epps' own words, this is what kills me. I, I just have to need, I only need his own argument to destroy it. He's already stated that the, in the countries where they eliminated their trade barriers and monopolies, quote, supply was overwhelmed with imports, right? As consumers chose to get more for less because they had a plentiful supply. And no one forced the countries where they ended the cartels to keep them, quote, subsidized by government to stay afloat, end quote. That's not a consequence of lifting the trade barrier, which is a good thing, but of propping up the old inefficient industry, continuing it. That's a bad thing. It's welfare. In another, just business welfare. So you have to ask yourself a fundamental question. If other milk producers in other jurisdictions are able to flood your market with their products, then why can't our local producers do the same? Compete domestically through pricing and compete internationally by increasing production and exporting to the same countries who are selling to us. That's how it's supposed to work. Well, you know, he does say later in the article, if it's the same article Mm -hmm. that I read in the paper, that in Canada we have a, a, a natural disadvantage having harsh winters where cows have to be put into barns over the winter. So we have a natural disadvantage. But that's not an argument for a cartel. That's an argument for getting out of the business and letting Americans give us cheap milk. Yeah, and I'm sure there are cheaper ways to even handle that. I, I, I don't think that's even an issue in and of itself. Mm. But Epp argues that the cartel system matches supply with demand as if a free market, which he calls inefficient, doesn't do exactly the same thing, but efficiently without any necessary controls by cartel monopolists, I don't see how that's efficient, who have a license to steal from both their competition and from their consumers. That's the role of prices in a free market, without which the true value of any commodity or service can't even be determined. You'll never know what something's worth unless you know what people are willing to pay for it. Anybody can set a price. That doesn't make it so without the necessity uh, uh, you know, of using force to make it so. That's, that's how they make it so. He says he can't reconcile his free market principles with supply management complaints, Ep, about Bernier's very clear and principled and correct and true statement. 
principles are fine, but economic ideas that work are better, he concludes up with the ultimate lie that what he has supported is an economic idea. It's not an economic idea, what he's just supported. It has nothing to do with economics. It has to do with criminality, with the advocacy of the initiation of force against the entire public for the unearned benefit of the few. Very shameful. Yet this is the moral vacuum of our ideas, people, who write in the columns of our popular media. Peter Epp, I don't know. In Epp's case, he has attempted to call an act of criminality one of economic logic and efficiency. And here's yet another wacko example of appealing to economics to make both a case for science and for more theft. This one comes from, uh, this is a letter to the editor that appeared in the June 3rd London Free Press with the heading, Electric Heat is Not a Burden, written by Alan Slavin of the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Trent University in Peterborough. And he writes, the editorial grits, uh, or sorry, the editorial grits natural gas ban would prove costly, May 19th, criticizes the Ontario government for its leaked plan to require all new buildings to be heated electrically beginning in 2030 to reduce Ontario's green gas emissions the greenhouse gas emissions. The editorial argued electrical heat is too expensive compared to gas heat. This argument is both short-sighted and incorrect. We have to move away from the fossil fuel heating because of climate change. For example, 49% of greenhouse gases in Peterborough now come from residences, according to the city's recent energy inventory. The Liberal plan would apply only to new buildings, so it will not penalize existing homeowners. Not true, by the way. These new electric homes will follow a much enhanced building code that will make electric heating affordable for everyone. One percent of all homes in Ontario are new every year and will last for about 50 years. We must reduce CO2 emissions to the minimum as soon as possible. The extra cost of building to the enhanced code will be recouped over a very few years in energy savings and will be far less than the cost of unmitigated climate change. And so concludes Alan Slavin, Department of Physics and Astronomy, Trent University. And the fact that he put his credentials onto this opinion piece, I think does both him and Trent University a great disservice. His argument is outrageous and makes no reference to any relevant facts whatsoever, not the least of which is to explain why we have to move away from fossil fuel heating because of climate change. No such case is even made. Without even offering a hint as to why, the rest of his argument is about affordability of electric heat, which would be still generated by natural gas, you know, at the source. The government will be doing it and then delivering the heat to us, or the electricity to us. Yes, as explained by Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever when on our, last on our show, you can indeed make electric heating affordable for everyone in exactly the same way as the government makes milk marketing cartels efficient for everyone at the point of a gun. As I understand the wind cartel strategy, the plan is to ultimately make all electricity to consumers provided for free, which would certainly be affordable, except for the fact that it would be paid for by taxes, a single-payer energy system which will redistribute wealth and ration electricity on political grounds. What Slavin has argued in this regard is quite possible if one wishes to have no freedom, no choice, no competition, and unaffordable but free electricity. This is what we have now. We have unaffordable but free health care. By the way, when Slavin cited that 49% of greenhouse gases in Peterborough come, come from residences, I'm going to assume that by, by that he means CO2, although possibly not. But of course, within the city boundary, obviously, most energy exhaust in all forms would come from residences, the rest from industry, if there's any left, and transportation. 
That is the nature of any city. It's normal. But the 49% statistic as applied to Peterborough becomes meaningless when taken on a global scale, since after all, global climate change is the goal that they're tr trying to prevent. Right? So he's talking about how, how much heat is going on in Peterborough. Quote, the liberal plan would apply only to new buildings, so it will not penalize existing homeowners. Well, whatever Slavin believes the plan is, this last statement will not happen that way. Even if the plan, for a forced supply of electricity, is only first applied to new buildings, that will immediately affect existing homeowners and future homeowners. They'll be competing for pricing in houses. People with the new houses can't afford them. And, and we already know that the legislation's coming to, to, to force audits on people who want to sell their existing houses and make them uh, energy efficient before they can sell them. That's how they're doing it, right? So you can hang on to your house, but when you want to sell it, good luck. Again, Everyone is making economic arguments which aren't economic, but political, including the original editorial that Slavin himself is criticizing. The editorial, quote, argued that electrical heat is too expensive compared to gas heat. This argument is both short-sighted and incorrect. Well, he's partially right that there because the original art article that he's criticizing was, was irrelevant. Again, conservatives making economic arguments about things that are moral issues. The issue is consent. The issue is consumer choice. The issue is doing business in a market free of coercion and of force. Without all of those conditions firmly in place, any claim that one thing is cheaper or more efficient than another is completely arbitrary and contradicted by the very fact that the so-called cheaper or more efficient form of energy has to be forced upon consumers. How much more evidence do you need that it's not so? How many consumers do you know have to be forced to get by the cheaper deal? I'd, I've never heard of that. And just as electricity consumers today are realizing that the more they conserve and the less electricity they use, the more they pay to the power companies. So too will they discover that under a free electric supply system, even if everyone uses zero, they'll still be paying taxes for their electricity even if everybody shut it right off. And speaking of zeros. He was speaking of Michael Dolan, Lieutenant. It turns out he was one of those Irish terrorists. According to Scotland Yard, he was responsible for the murder of five people. One of them, a woman. And there was a child, sir. <sighs> I had no idea. Well, you were a terrorist yourself in those days. So I know you were very young. But there was that business with the dynamite. I'm surprised you didn't know about Mr. Dolan. Insidious old age, Lieutenant, comes sweeping in like winter before its time. It could be I heard and forgot. You didn't forget his name. You remembered it along with his poem. Well, there's the trick of memory. You retain a man's name and a bit of verse and forget the rest. But that bit of verse, when you realize that was written by a fanatic murderer, it's hard to see how you could call Mr. Dolan a philosopher. Someone to be respected. Like you said on the radio. <laughs> well, if I said it, Lieutenant, it was without realizing Mr. Dolan's true character. Not much of a man to revere, was he? No, sir.
Do you know these lines, Lieutenant? They're by Lewis Carroll. You can charge me with murder or want of sense. We're all of us weak at times. But the slightest approach to a false pretense was never among my crimes. Well, sir, you pretend to raise money to help the Irish victims. And all the while, you were planning to make more victims. Wasn't that a pretense, sir? Politics makes liars of us all, Lieutenant. That's simply not true. It's just that liars are attracted to politics. Politics like religion is among the few areas in which we accept so much irrationality. The belief in ideas and beliefs that are demonstrably not so, given evidence, reason, and reality. What is true is that politics attracts far more than its fair share of people who want something for nothing. Only in politics and religion, you know, do people tolerate this. And so, if one's objective is objectively unjust or self-serving, it's simply not possible to tell the truth in politics. For people who are not interested in politics, politics presents a great problem and a dilemma. The problem is, politics is still interested in them. The problem with politics, remember, if you're not interested in politics, it's interested in you. There's no opting out. Whether you choose to join a political party or not, some political party somewhere will choose to join you. Oh, not in the membership sense of the word, of course, but in the sense that you will definitely pay, be paying dues to one party or another or because of one party or another, based at the very least on what political economic policies they put in place. The framework of laws, trade restrictions, taxes, and regulations. So if you're among those who's watching current political trends with a sense of despair and helplessness and are wondering what can be done to turn things around, back to lower taxes, affordable energy, freedom of speech, personal responsibility, freedom and capitalism, you're probably a person who would see themselves as being on the right. But the people on the right have a problem. The right and left have always organized quite differently on political grounds, and the left is winning and the right is losing. If you recall when we at the Freedom Party dinner event where Yaron Brooks spoke, he made it very clear how that was the case. Capitalism is losing, socialism and collectivism is winning. And the problem is that there are very few honest people who actually get involved in politics in an effective way. In fact, by the time such people are old enough to take control from others over themselves, they've been burned out on cynicism, disgust, and a sense of helplessness in the, same, in the face of a seemingly endless assault on their rights. Which brings me to a book called The Anti-Industrial Revolution and an essay written by Ayn Rand. Uh, actually, the book's called The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. And the very title of the book uh, describes today's climate change agenda, among others. But she says something very personal. I think, I wonder how many people feel like this. She says, it's a fundamental conviction which some young people never acquire. Some hold only in their youth, and a few hold to the end of their days, the conviction that ideas matter. In one's youth, that conviction is experienced as a self-evident absolute, and one is unable to fully believe that there are people who do not share it. This is a big thing that people can't get their heads around. That ideas matter means that knowledge matters, that truth matters, that one's mind matters. And in the radiance of that certainty, in the process of growing up, is the best aspect of youth, she writes. Its consequence is the inability to believe in the power and triumph of evil. No matter what corruption one observes in one's immediate background, one's able to accept it as normal or permanent or metaphysically right. 
people feel this injustice or terror or falsehood, you know, it's not, it's just, it's the exception, it's not the rule. One feels certain that somewhere on earth, even if not anywhere in one surrounding immediately, that a proper way of human life is possible to human beings and that justice matters. And if justice matters and one fights for it, one speaks out in the unnamed certainty that someone somewhere will understand. It's not the particular content of a young person's ideas that is of primary importance in this issue, but his attitudes towards ideas as such. This is the inexplicable personal alchemy that describes an independent mind dedicated to the supremacy of ideas, i.e. of truth, she said. Young persons who hold that conviction do not need to know different types of society in order to discover the evils, falsehoods, or contradictions of the one in which they live. Intellectual honesty is the only tool required. Men who possess this personal alchemy are exceedingly rare. They are a small minority in any country or culture. Welcome to the club, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) The dedication to ideas leads in practice to an almost involuntary goodwill towards men. I found this fascinating. Or rather to something deeper and more important, which is the root of goodwill. Respect. It leads to the attitude and individual encounters of treating men as rational beings on the unstated premise that a man is innocent until proven guilty, that he is not evil until he has proved himself to be, quote, evil in terms of this attitude, which means close to the power of ideas uh, and reason. If anyone wonders at the moral credibility gap of today, at the heavy gray dullness of our cultural atmosphere, she she says, don't wonder any longer. Who can take any value seriously if he's offered for moral inspiration the choice between two images of youth, an unshaved, barefooted Harvard graduate throwing bottles and bombs at policemen, or a prim, sun-helmeted, frustrated little autocrat of the Peace Corps spoon-feeding babies in a jungle clinic? No, these are not representative of America's youth. They are, in fact, a very small minority with a very loud group of unpaid PRs on university facilities and among the press. But where are its representatives? Where are America's young fighters for ideas, the rebels against conformity to the gutter, the young men of inexplicable personal alchemy, those who are actually concerned with the truth? And she basically says that most people are giving up who who are concerned with truth, you know, they gradually give up, extinguishing their minds before they have a chance to grasp the nature of the evil that they are facing. And so she says, all you can do is, is, is speak to this evil. So you have to have a voice and only a few people are capable of doing it. And if you find those people and you're not one of them, it's your responsibility, if you share their point of view, to support them, to support them in some way, to support them either financially, support them verbally support them by sharing their ideas. And the basic thing she says, of course, she says, I do not know what effect my one voice can have in a matter of this kind. But she says, I'm addressing myself to the best within any person who has preserved some sense of humanity, justice and compassion, and is still able to care or give a damn. And she says, there's only one form of protest open to the men of goodwill in the semi-free world. Do not sanction the jailer's of your mind, the jailers of people who are free. Do not help them pretend they are morally acceptable leaders of a civilized country. We shouldn't pretend, as Paul McKeever says, that we have a government when really we have a bunch of thieves and and malcontents in government who are using government for their own end. And she basically says that if, if, if men of goodwill 
do this and do it for a long enough sustained period, it will actually save the condemned, which happens to be a lot of us. So easier said than done. No, we're doing it right now on this show on Just Right. We do not sanction the right of our jailers, whatever form that metaphorical image may take in reality, from price fixing and establishing energy cartels to literally you know, fining you or locking you up for expressing your opposition to these jailers. This can only be done in an environment of moral certainty, an environment that is always open to the evidence as it is revealed. And that reminds me of a funny line I recall from one of my favorite old TV series, Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> After watching his carefully crafted plan fall to pieces when put to the test and being accused of being wrong, a very angry General Burkhalter retorts to his accuser, Colonel Klink, I wasn't wrong. I was mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> and what, that, you know, what made that particularly funny is that he was right, you know, that, that he was only mistaken. So... This thing is you don't have to feel this certainty about being right. You have to be certain about your values and where you're going and that you act on the information you have. Now, what we are about to hear is the truth about truth. Thanks to a brilliant and bang-on presentation by Bill Whittle on his August 31st, 2011 Afterburner program online. And we'll be back. KPFK-FM is the Pacifica radio affiliate for Los Angeles. KPFK, like the rest of Pacifica Radio, has a uh, picturesque political alignment. Now, moving from the middle out towards the left, you might say that it's the truth, CBS, CNN, NPR, Pravda, the Cuban government mouthpiece called Grandma, Mother Jones, The New York Times, The View, MSNBC, and Pacifica Radio is somewhere out here past the limits of reason and good taste for Chairman Mao. I normally can't bear to listen to KPFK for more than six or seven minutes without oxygen and a defibrillator standing by, but the other morning I scanned past them and caught a little bit of their fun to drive. There was a pre-recorded message from a woman that sounded like B. Arthur asking the fellow travelers to pony up since KPFK was the only radio station in LA not directly funded by the corporate weapons manufacturers whose mission statement is to kill brown people in their global war for oil. Yeah, I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. But then something telling happened, something I've seen a lot of on the left, something important. Amy Goodman, host of the rapidly anti-business, anti-military radio show Democracy Now!, did an extended pitch for Filthy Lucre, which culminated in a chance to go to the studios in New York City for a taping followed by dinner with Ms. Goodman. Come in and hear the truth, said Amy, but she instantly corrected her faux pas by adding, I mean, come in and hear your truth. There are many different truths. You know, I get this a lot when I argue with progressives. I lay down some facts, some evidence, some history, and some logic, and close with something like, hey, looks like the truth to me. The response, invariably, is not to counter with opposing evidence, find holes in the logic, cite alternative historical examples, or any of that. The usual response is to say I'm crazy without ever saying where I'm wrong. And when I say back, fine, I'm crazy, but it's true, though, isn't it? They'll say the same thing every single time. Well. That's your truth. I have my truth, you see. Amy Goodman has her truth. Everybody has their own truth. This is a mantra on the left today, and if you think about it, it has to be the mantra on the left because there's no left without it. Look, when facts, history, logic, reason, and other evidence are on one side and not on the other, then the entire idea of verifiable fact has to be discredited. Not only must history be ignored, but the entire idea 
of objective history has to be ridiculed and discarded. Logic, that stern and uncompromising strop to Occam's razor that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, that transcendental mathematical understanding of things, well, that's simply a construct of privileged white males, which has no more validity than astrology or palm reading. It's just another belief system, no better or worse than any other. Let's just break this nonsense down with some specific examples. I believe that capitalism and the free market economy are in every way superior to socialism and a command economy. People like Amy Goodman think the opposite. She would say that I have my truth and she has her truth. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Now, unfortunately, Amy and all the rest of you, the truth is the truth. It doesn't care a fig for what Bill Whittle or Amy Goodman believes, it is what it is. So when I say capitalism is better than socialism, that's not my truth, it's my opinion. And when progressives tell you that what they believe is their truth, what they're really doing is stealing. Progressives are good at stealing. Their entire philosophy consists of taking what does not belong to them. Now what they're stealing in this case is credibility. By talking about their truths, they are stealing the awesome credibility and power of the word truth and gluing it onto the front of their opinion to buff it up and give it some unearned weight and respect. So, when I say that capitalism is better than socialism, that's my opinion. When a progressive says socialism is better than capitalism, that's their opinion. But out there in the real world, beyond our precious and worthless little opinions, real people have lived under real capitalism and real socialism. And the consequences of those political systems have affected millions of real lives in ways that are most definitely not opinions. Now, I don't know how many Cuban families have died over the course of days or weeks being swept out to sea in the Straits of Florida and watched as their husbands and wives, their grandparents and their children drowned in front of their eyes, or perhaps they died a horrible death from thirst or madness from drinking seawater, risking all of that to cross 100 miles of shark-infested waters to come and live in a capitalist society. It's in the thousands, no doubt. No one really knows. One thing we do know, though, not one single American has ever gone to the shore in Fort Lauderdale and taken their infant daughter, grandparents, 13-year-old son, and pregnant wife down to the beach, lashed some inner tubes to a beach chair, and set out for the free single-payer health care down in Cuba. Not one. That has never happened. It's not that there are 60 rafts coming this way for every 40 that go the other way. Even if that were the case, my opinion would be closer to the real truth than Amy Goodman's is, and it's not 70-30. It's not 80-20. It's not 90%, it's not 95%, and it's not 99% of the rafts going from socialism to capitalism. It's 100% of them, 100%, it's all of them. You know how many families were shot to death climbing the Berlin Wall to escape the horrors of corporatism and find sanctuary in the workers' paradise of East Germany? Zero. That's how many. None. Anywhere between one to 200 people had their only lives shot out of them climbing that wall to live the way of life that I advocate, and no one, no one ever was willing to die to leave that way of life and go and live the way of life that Amy Goodman wants to live in her truth. And now we get down to the brass tacks, because the fact 
that the evidence, logic, and history are on my side and not hers is not coincidence and it's not luck either. Those things don't give a damn. What people like me think or what people like her think, they're just out there. I'm on the side of the evidence, reason, and logic, not because I brought them to my side of the line. They're immovable. I can't touch them. I'm on the same side as them because I went to them. Boy, talk about getting it just right. I went to them. Oh, I loved it. That was Bill Whittle, by the way. I also got a kick out of his hierarchy of leftist publications. That was funny. <laughs> From the middle to the left, The Truth, CBS, CNN, NPR, Pravda, Cuba's Grandma, Mother Jones, New York Times, The View, MSNBC, and Pacifica Radio, way out there past Chairman Mao. That was funny stuff. It was, it was indeed. Yeah. Well, Bob, this segment of the show, <laughs> um, I'll be up front to our listeners and to you and, and admit it's going to be a little embarrassing that it's going to follow uh -oh. from what you're talking about, what Bill Whittle was talking about, what Ayn Rand talked about. And I'm going to ask for donations or financial support. So I think we're um, overdue for some serious discussions on, on supporting freedom and capitalism and individualism, but supporting it more than just with an agreement or a nod of the head or a like on Facebook or a follow on Twitter, although, you know, those things are important. The comparison I'm about to make, I make with the greatest of humility. You know, 72 years ago, millions of people sat at home while only a small percentage of them invaded the beaches of Normandy, France, and began an all-out overthrow of the nationalist socialists in Europe. Today, we see a small percentage of people actively engaged in rebuffing the exact same forces, ideologically speaking, engaged in the overthrow of the West. In France in 1944, the enemy wore the uniforms of German soldiers. In today's France, the United States, Canada, Sweden, Britain, Finland, Norway, Belgium, Denmark, and even Germany, they don't wear uniforms. They appear as any of us in civilian clothing, but their goal is the same as that of the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party of the 1930s and 40s, the subjugation of individuals to the will of the state and for what they believe is the greater good of the collective. They are fifth columnists, a minority whose purpose is the corruption politically, philosophically, and morally of the majority. To apply a single label to them is like trying to swat a fly in mid-flight. They flit and fly about from left to right, eluding any clearly definable moniker. At the turn of the 20th century, they may have been labeled anarchists. Later, they were labeled socialists or communists. Today, there are progressives or liberals. Perhaps the most all-encompassing word to describe them would be the left. The single common characteristic of their political philosophy is that they are collectivists. In Canada, the predominant political parties of the Liberals, Conservatives, New Democrats, and Greens are collectivists. In the United States, the Democrats, the Republicans, they're collectivists. The individual is subservient to all of them. So what you really have are dictatorships. The question to be answered today is how do the ideas of these collectivists, as you said, Bob, ideas matter, and how do these ideas become the predominant zeitgeist of a nation? For the left, it involves control. Control of the schools, control of the media, control of the political machines necessary to elect the representatives, and an army of mindless stooges willing to commit violence in the name of collectivism. Which again is not an idea. 
Now, who funds these teachers, journalists, politicians, and black bloc agitators? Well, you do, dear listener, you do. Many of you willingly, many of you unwillingly, or at least unknowingly. Now, a little bit of a story for myself. For five years, from 1990 to 95, I, acting on behalf of the Freedom Party of Ontario, was the recipient of faxes from every ministry of the Ontario government and every department in that same government, which at the time was led by the New Democratic Party, Bob Ray. Every day I would receive faxes from the government of Bob Ray detailing the doling out of tax money to individuals, groups, and organizations. One day it might be $50,000 to the leader of a a group of one-armed black aboriginal lesbian puppeteers. The following day it might be underprivileged student pygmy victims of alien abductions. Now, obviously, I'm (laughs) making these groups up. But the actual groups and individuals that they did give to were just as obscure. Every day I saw crossing my desk hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars going to collectivists for the sole purpose of that being the promotion of collectivism and the rewarding of collectivism and Marxism. I saw millions doled out to teachers striking for more pay for less work so that today many make over $100,000 a year. I can't believe that for teaching. I saw millions heaped upon labor leaders as a reward for doing no labor. Millions stuffed into the pockets of crony businessmen for donating to the coffers of the various collectivist causes and political parties. Millions of your tax dollars being spent to diminish your standard of living, all in the name of collectivism. And I have to add, Robert, that yes, we used to get all those reports daily of all the spending, and it was the same under every party. That's true. Never yeah. changed. Now, I just mentioned it on the, yeah. the New Democrats because that's when that's I when I you were there. Them, yeah. The needs of the many must come before the selfish desires of providing for you and your family, don't you know? I mean, that's the purpose of all that, doling out of your money to these causes. Today, well over half of what you earn, whether you live in Ontario or New Jersey or Berlin, is being taken to promote a philosophy you may or may not agree with, collectivism, whether you like it or not. The sheer magnitude of the theft and redistribution of your wealth to and into the pockets of your ideological enemies is so staggering that many of you feel impotent as to what you can do to stop it. You're catatonic. You're freeze. You try to do the best you can with what's left of you, with what's left of your money, hoping that someday somebody, somewhere, will stop the bleeding. You try to ignore the damage the government is doing to you and your children and try to carry on. After all, you have food in your belly, don't you? A roof over your head and Game of Thrones is on at nine. Well, guess what? In Germany in 1930, people had food in their belly, a roof over their head, and Marlene Dietrich was playing at the Titiana Palast. Most of us get on with our lives while the forces of the collectivists work their machinations behind the scenes. The three things it is forbidden to talk about in polite company are what? Sex, religion, and politics. Because of this interdiction, our leftist masters have taken control. It happened in Weimar Republic, Germany, and it's happening today in Merkel's Germany, Obama's America, and Trudeau's Canada. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. So what matters to you? If you say that it's family, work, entertainment, travel, partying, pleasure, then you're amongst good company. 
because that matters to me too. But if you fail to realize that all of the things that matter to you rest on that one thing which is verboten to talk about in polite company, politics, then you can rest assured. Rest assured that one day you'll find that what matters to you will one day be ripped from you by those who do not share your interests. Not a day goes by that you can't see the forces of collectivists using your money to undermine the philosophic basis of your life. Whether it's on the radio, in the newspapers, on TV, in the schools, at work, or driving to the store, everywhere around you is the evidence of collectivism, control, and the subjugation of the individual to the will of your masters. The bitter irony is that it's largely through your tax dollars, easily half of what you earn, no matter where you live, that your political enemies can permeate your surroundings and negatively impact your life to the degree that they do. Let's pause for a little break and hear from Atlas Shrugged and also some more Bill Whitley. Back after this. Do you realize what you've done? Dodged the bullet. You've given the people a voice. You said what was already on everyone's mind. You won. Hank, you won. Dagny, you can't win a battle that never ends. Look at this world. How can such small people do so much damage? And if you make a contribution to Progressive Political Radio, you'll receive a DVD set on the latest UFO revelations or new evidence in the massive conspiracy to kill Bobby Kennedy or learn more details on how 9-11 was an inside job or how waving flags reveal that the moon landing was a giant conspiracy. Or you can hear more about modern-day Prester John, namely the Afghan oil pipeline that doesn't exist and other valuable tools of progressive thought which, like numerology, UFOs, conspiracy theories, and all the rest, is simply wishful thinking, revenge fantasies, and delusions of grandeur, wrapped tight in pseudo-scientific and pseudo-philosophical jargon designed to steal credibility from what is and redistribute it according to need. I now come to the point of what you do to counteract the philosophic tide of the collectivists, to repel or at least stem the tide of their onslaught on reason and truth and freedom. You must give money. But in this case, you give it willingly. It's not taken by force and used against you. It is taken with your permission to be used to promote your ideas, to defend your way of life, and to destroy your political enemy's ideas. Many of us are familiar with the image going around of that lone German fellow standing in a crowd with his arms crossed while everyone around him is giving the fascist salute. His was an act of, act of defiance against the regime who took exception to his marrying his Jew, Jewish wife. His name was August Landmesser. He was later conscripted into military service where he was killed, and his wife was presumed to have died in a concentration camp. Landmesser stood alone against a mass of leftists. He lost. You don't have to. You know, outside of our soldiers, there's no one I know of in today's world who, like the founding fathers of the United States, has devoted his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor to the defense of freedom than Bob Metz. 
Over the past 30 years, Bob has surrounded himself with like-minded individuals, supporters, and friends who have, shall we say, come to the aid of the party. People who have devoted time out of their busy lives to support Bob's political goals of freedom, capitalism, and individualism. There have been many who have contributed thousands of hours and thousands of dollars to the Freedom Party of Ontario, which was started by Bob and Mark Emery back in 1984. Now, not everyone can do what Bob has done, obviously. He's forsaken a life of carefree leisure and something sometimes to pursue matters of fundamental justice. I do what I can. I give of my time and, I, and my money, but I also try to pursue my own personal passions you know, unfortunately aware that I am um, seeing the political world around me change and repeat the world, uh, pol world politics of 1930s Europe. This is where my shameless appeal to you comes in. Bob and I realize that you have more important things to do with your life than devote time to political causes or give to entities such as Just Right, this program. But like you, we realize that if you don't at the very least support the efforts of Bob and I and the many others around us who, and who are like us, who are pushing against the tides of collectivism in order to preserve those passions that we all love, then there will come a day, and I'm 100% certain, that none of us will be able to live lives of peace and happiness. That day will come. You know, I didn't realize you were going to go in this direction, Robert. I'm a little embarrassed. <coughs> <laughs> you don't need but, to be. But you brought to mind a very frightening thing that my mother once said to me when I first got involved in politics. And she looked at me straight and she says, you know they're going to kill you. Really. It's true. People like you and I and she are warned up me against that. the wall, the first up yep. against the wall during the revolution. She said, she said now she's been through it, okay? Mm -hmm. My mother has lived through it. She saw her father get killed by the Russians. She saw her family torn apart. She's, they, I can't even picture what my parents went through. It's not possible for me to conceive in, in, in an experiential way. But she used to warn me of the possibility from the first day I got involved in politics. And, and, you know, she'd experienced the reality of that statement. And she sees it coming again. But was, what was funny for me was instead of keeping me out of politics, that fear that they might kill me because I would get involved in politics became my incentive <laughs> <laughs> to get involved in politics because I knew deep down that they would come to kill me whether I got involved in politics or not. That's right. All right. Again, like I said before, even if I'm not interested in politics, politics is interested in me because I'm the source as an individual citizen, whatever, of all the money that the politicians want to use to take, just take from you. you know, if, I wish we would just learn one of the commandments and, and abide by it. Thou shalt not steal. That would change politics overnight. But that's the chance you take. You know, if you and I are going to go down, we're going to go down fighting. Because we have people against us, like uh, the billionaire George Soros, who gives millions to pay for thugs to disrupt the democratic election of Republicans in the United States. We're watching it today. The leaders of Canada, Germany, Britain, and other countries around the world spend billions of taxpayers' dollars to promote, guess what, socialism, collectivism, and the uh, concomitant agendas to those two philosophies. Mm -hmm. Where can you, dear listener... As a person who opposes the collectivist philosophy, spend your money to push back. What agency consistently defends the rights of the individual to pursue their own happiness, to keep the fruits of their own labor, to think as they wish to think, to say 
as they wish to say, and to protect those same rights in others. This program, Just Right, needs your financial support. And in Canada, especially Ontario, to give your money and support to any other party than the Freedom Party of Ontario is to give your money to collectivists, even if they call themselves conservatives, because they are collectivists. We just heard it in the first part of this program with Peter Epp. In the United States, I would advocate for the support of the Ayn Rand Institute, an organization I've donated to and have promoted on this program. Other than those three entities, I don't think that there's anything out there who consistently talk about the moral basis of freedom and capitalism. I'm sure there's some out there. We're starting to discover them ourselves. Mm -hmm. And there are certain, certainly people who make opinions that are quite in line with ours, like I, the ones we just heard. Yes, Bill, Bill Whittle is somebody that I, I, I say that we agree with almost all the time, though there are, have been a couple of things that he's done that I don't particularly agree with. Um, there are programs in the United States that I listen to on Sirius XM that you agree with them 90% of the time, but their fundamental philosophic moral basis for defending their arguments is oftentimes incorrect. Just Right gets it just right. This program is without a doubt the only program you'll find on the air or online which will consistently defend the rights of the individual over the whims of the leaders of the collective will fight for capitalism over socialism, will give you the intellectual ammunition to pr promote a positive sense of life as opposed to a nihilistic and defeatist vision for life on this earth. We realize that to sit in front of a, a microphone like we're doing right now or a camera is not in the interest or skill set necessarily of many of our listeners, but I must say this. If you like what you hear and if you agree with what you are what we are doing here in the studio, I suggest you support us financially. Bob and I have an endless list of ideas we can act upon if given the funds to make them happen, from videos, newsletters, books, or more great audio. We need the equipment to make a professional product. We need the money to buy airtime and promote our ideas. If you agree with us, your agreement is appreciated. But what we're asking for is your financial support. Without making this sound like a PBS fundraiser, where we send you a nice little tote bag for a donation of 20 bucks, I'd like for you to go to our website at justrightmedia.org and make a donation via PayPal. If you're a young student with nothing but spare change for a Starbucks, but agree with us that individual freedom is something worth supporting, then I suggest you give up coffee for a week and send a Just Right 10 bucks. If you're a blue-collar worker, who likes his barbecues with his family, his job, and the occasional craft beer and wants to protect that lifestyle and make sure your children can enjoy it when they get to be your age, then send us a hundred bucks. To air this show on WBCQ covering the entire eastern seaboard of North America costs, guess what, 25 bucks. U.S. So, a hundred dollars? We'll make sure that we're heard for a month. Can you afford it? Now, of course, there's different rates on different stations and, and very various prices. Yes, that's right. On uh, Channel 292, uh, airing out of Germany, where we're heard, it costs 15 euros for the, to air this program once. And then there are other stations that we're looking at where it costs a heck of a lot more. <laughs> now, let's get into some real money. If you're a wealthy businessman and you're tuning into this show or you find us online and you're listening to this right now, you're a wealthy businessman who believes that he got to where he is through the sweat of his brow and a political environment of laws, property rights, and freedom, then send us $20,000. <laughs> I'm not joking. If you really think 
that it's going to continue, that the gravy train will continue. You're wrong. Let Bob and I promote those very ideas of capitalism that you will not find on any other pro program in the world. We don't defend capitalism because it works or it's efficient. We defend capitalism because it is moral. We don't defend freedom because it is pragmatic. We defend it because it's right. We don't ask that you give your life to freedom. We ask that you acknowledge that much of your money is being taken away by people who wish to do you harm. And then if you voluntarily give some of your money to our program, then you're counteracting the forces of the collectivists and the left. You're counteracting it by us, by enabling us. Just right. Now, of course, donations can be made via PayPal on our website. If you want to mug them, maybe. Bob, what do you think? Should we put our, <laughs> should we put our logo on a mug and give it to contributors? <laughs> Just don't put my picture on it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> then I wouldn't mind having one. But, you know, it's a funny thing. Bill Whittle talked about, um, he's joking there, about progressive radio raising funds, okay? Because they do the same thing. The left seems to give give money for all these insane things because they think they're going to get something bigger back, right? And I think the word progressive is itself an example of how the left steals credibility by using words they're not entitled to use, as Bill Whittle pointed out. They literally call themselves progressive when they're not progressive. The real progressive is the person who progresses towards the truth, not his truth or my truth mm -hmm. or your truth or my mother's truth or my father's truth or my dog's truth, but the truth. And that's what we mean whenever we say that we are on a journey in the right direction. That direction is not towards some given end that I already have in my mind. I got this, you know, vision of heaven or whatever, right? But to honesty, to the thing that Ayn Rand was calling for. We, we need to get back, and, and it is possible. The world has been there before. Most people are there. We got to drag our politicians into the same mode that most people are in. We don't want to make it sound like the majority of people think like this. The world is run by minorities. That's very important to keep in mind. That's absolutely true. And, and tiny, tiny minorities. Every political party is run by a handful of people. Doesn't matter how big the party, how small the party. Run by about the same number of people. And parties are different than governments. Governments are always in place. That's the administrators that we never vote for. Parties are things that establish directions for them. What some people call progressive is a progression towards tyranny and totalitarianism. And of course, what we would call progressive, and we can't use the word anymore even because we're not going in that direction. But we are heading in the right direction. So join us again next week when we will continue our journey in that direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. And we'll send you a mug if you send us some cash. <laughs> <laughs> to black and white under the bed clothes everything will be alright hello control what number are you calling I'm calling control operator I cannot hear you clearly sir oh sorry about that operator you see I'm in a running gun battle wait a minute I'll put my silencer on <laughs> Is that better, operator? Yes, much better, sir. <laughs> now, whom do you want? I'm calling control, operator. Control? 
Yes, a master spy organization here in Washington operated by the forces of good in the free world to combat the forces of evil and totalitarianism. Would you please spell that, sir? Control. C-O-N. No, totalitarianism. Operator, would you please hurry? I'm in great danger. One moment, please. 